from movement to medicine, climate change and our future, everything depends on energy. We use it to drive us, we use it to heal us. This is The Coefficient Life, and we sit down with the smartest scientists, futurists and thinkers on the planet to discuss the big ideas around energy in all its forms and ask the questions you wish you could ask them. I'm your host, Anthony Salomon. And I'm your other host, Kim Brooks. Anthony and I are here to bring you stories that are shaping the future of our planet. Now let's dive on into a universe of energy. From the Podcast Bureau, this is The Coefficient Life. What is neutron dissymmetry? Why does it matter? And what's happening today in the world of nuclear research? I'm here today with one of my favorite people involved in this research for his entire career, and also one of my thesis committee members from way back when, when I did my PhD at Georgia Tech. Dr. Nolan Hertel is the president of the Health Physics Society, a faculty member in the Department of Nuclear Engineering at Georgia Tech. He's a well-known radiation specialist and a faculty member also in Oak Ridge National Lab's Center for Radiation Detection Knowledge. His research in radiation detection and shielding and other fields is nothing short of groundbreaking. We had a brief discussion with Nolan about his work, the history of his journey into the nuclear research, and how it affects what is happening today in the realm of nuclear power. Well, thank you for taking the time. It's amazing to get to speak to everyone about some amazing stuff that is well above my head. <laughs> but that's why I bring Ken along to, well, try, yeah, and, Ken, yeah, to try and make sense of it for us. <laughs> Ken's a great guy. But uh, I don't know if he explained to you no, anything about no. what we're doing. Ken and I are uh, doing a podcast called The Coefficient Life. And the idea of it is to take the complicated world that is nuclear in general and present it to lay people like myself in a way that talks to them, demystifies it a little bit, right. lets people know that nuclear energy, it has to be part of the conversation for the future. And then all of the other applications in medicine and engineering and technology and sort of looking at those things and again, take, lifting the veil on them to say, hey, you're already using these things and you don't even know it or uh, touching these things. You're not afraid of your cell phone, right. but, but you're afraid of this. And that actually has more radiation than this. And then, you know, like we were just talking about just, you know, the global background radiation. And then most people don't even, I think, know that they're living right. in amongst right. that kind of a thing. So, so it, flying the not-so-friendly skies. That used to be a chapter in the book. I had <laughs> I talked, Eric Hall. It's a good book. It's actually kind of written on, on a layman's level. It, I don't know whether you can still get copies. but Oh, about how much radiation you get about cosmic rays from flying. And he said flying the not-so-friendly skies was yeah. the title of his chapter. It was interesting. So, you know, being from Australia, I, you know, we have to fly everywhere. Oh, yeah. Long flights. Right? Long flights <laughs> everywhere, too. And they're higher altitude flights than domestic flights and things like that. And as a kid, when I, you know, because I went to college in Los Angeles, that was the one thing I used to always sit in the back of my mind of, well, they tell me that you get more radiation when you're up in these planes. How much radiation am I actually getting? And should I stop flying back and forth as much? And so that question was always lingering in my have, mind. Have you ever heard, the Europeans someplace, and I don't know how to get to it now, but they have a website where you put in the route. I didn't tell you how much exposure tell you, you know. on, on the I mean, I guess that varies. Say there's a solar flare, mm -hmm. you know, a solar event, that may change. But what's weird is, do, do you ever look at, there's a site called Space Weather. Yes. Okay. And the big thing yesterday was that 
And there was a solar first, a lot of proton zinging off, which apparently messes with the magnetic field. And the actual dose rate from cosmic rays in the Earth's upper atmosphere went down like 20%. So they show this plot from balloons, and, and it goes along, and goes boom, and then it goes back up. So it's kind of, that's that's interesting that it yeah, I, that I, it actually went down rather than going yeah, up. Yeah, I haven't really looked at it, but I guess it has to do with, I guess, all kinds of electromagnetic forces between the particles coming in. and uh, Yeah, that, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Well, it makes for a great sky show when you're watching the aurora, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it does, it does. <laughs> well, what people don't recognize is we had a guy from Tennessee who likes to model solar flares. And, and there are solar events that happened in the past that pretty much kind of like take down the electric grid if they happened again. There are interesting complications <laughs> that people, you know, the average person on the street would yeah, never I mean, have thought I, I, about. I mean, the one that we, that I, you know, I tend to think about the most is we rely on, you know, obviously a lot of low earth orbit satellites for our GPS. Right. <laughs> and what would happen if a solar flare knocked even one of those out of its uh, orbit? See, see, and I used to do Sam Nunn school here. There, I went, you know, they have a kind of a program, non-proliferation kind of thing. You know, yeah. Security program. So I went through the Sam Nunn security program, you know, because there were three or four faculty members. And the guy in there, now this is like 15 years ago at least, the guy in there, one guy was actually Sam Nunn's big assistant when he was, I don't know what it's called, a defense subcommittee in the Senate. And you know what he'd say? And we're still kind of just barely starting to think that North Koreans were a problem back then. And he said, well, you know what they really ought to do? I'm surprised he said this is launch a couple of nuclear weapons just high up in the atmosphere, detonate them, the electromagnetic pulse. We'll take out all the banking in the world because everything's bouncing off of these. And oh, yeah. I'm like, yeah, that would be worse than uh, <laughs> blowing up California, right? 100%. So, yeah, 100%. I, I mean, but I assume people know about that. But the interest. See, there's an interesting question. Can you shield from an EMP that's the byproduct of a nuclear reaction? Well, you can, but probably not on, on not a satellite. On, on a satellite. <laughs> Yeah, you, of course, because you want it to be so light yeah. that you can always, you, the, the answer to sh- so that's the old joke in shielding. You can always shield everything if you have enough weight and money and time. <laughs> the other weird thing is, I don't know if you noticed where NASA wants to launch a nuclear weapon at an asteroid just to practice. Yeah, they should actually do that, I think. No, they want to do it. Well, they, they I, have I to know if they can deflect it. By what degree can yeah. you deflect this momentum? Yeah. I mean, you, you ha- otherwise, how can you stop an asteroid event? Yeah. So the only thing, the only force powerful enough that we have to destruct, deflect it is that. Yeah. There needs to be, in fact, our worst, they need to send a whole MX missile at it with all, all the murders. Yeah, man, he's into it. This guy's into everything, man. He, hey, hey, there's nothing this guy's not excited about. But we have to, that's kind of true, isn't it? But if we get it when it's far enough away, we only have to hit it like one uh, or two degrees because by then, you don't by need the time to, it gets to us, a little bit. that, that one or two degrees is all the way out here, you know? But he is right. I mean, I get so into this stuff. It's like I was still in graduate school. Isn't it right? Isn't it true, Nolan? Oh, well, I get into it just like I'm watching Armageddon. So. I'm, I'm, ready. I'm ready just to go home and mow lawns the rest of my life. <laughs> so what's your uh, field of expertise in, in all of this? So in all of this, I, I'm probably, I'm more of an applied radiation physics kind of guy, I guess, you know, with a emphasis on neutron detection and, and neutron dosimetry, measurement of neutron dose. Those would be big things, mainly applied to radiation protection applications. But also, I've done some stuff where neutron measurements look at fundamental nuclear data. You know, how well can, if we measure something and we set this up, how well can we actually calculate it? So that's how I got my start on my PhD, what we call an integral experiment, where we 
made a measurement, we modeled it and said, oh, why does that tell us how good the nuclear, assuming the code algorithms were correct, what does that tell us about the nuclear data? What maybe should people go off and measure better and, and work on? So, so I've done that, done some detection. After 9-11, everybody went nuts at funding agencies in the United States. Oh, we need new detectors, blah, blah, blah. So I worked with some of the material science guys here on yeah. a couple of detector types like zinc oxide. And, but in the last, last seven years, I taken on a joint faculty appointment at Oak Ridge National Lab in what's called, and I hate this name, the Center for Radiation Protection Knowledge. <laughs> I think they should have left the knowledge off, okay? Because, well, I'm saying it's like a cumbersome title, right? Yeah. But I actually served, believe it or not, as the interim director because the senior guy there didn't want to... Didn't want to be that. Well, yeah, he didn't want to go talk to people, okay? So I, I was... A, he didn't like the acronym. Yeah, it was better you know, than yeah, CPI. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's bad because I'd go to D.C. and they'd say, okay, what you guys been doing? And I'm, go, I'm like a talking head. And then some guy asked you a question question and you answer it correctly, but he questions whether you answered it correctly. Like, did they do this? I said, yeah, that, no, this is how they did it. Oh, are you sure that's how they did it? I didn't think they, and then, then I go back and they said, no, you were right. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I found it being the talking, well, I guess it's like being a politician, right? I, I did mainly, mainly that, but we've done, uh, you got talking about coefficients, right? <laughs> you know, there, are, there are coefficients for, say, if we're sitting in a room full of radioactivity and we're inhaling at a resting rate, how do you calculate the dose? Well, the group I work with at Oak Ridge, they generate these coefficients. Okay, so given the inhalation rate, the amount of air in the room, you get this. So, so these wind up in federal guidance reports, which you can go to EPA's webpage and get. Federal guidance reports, all federal agencies in the U.S. are supposed to use that data. Yeah. So we, they have that, and they also, so there are some for internal, and there are also external ones, like if we're sitting in a room full of air, or we go swimming in a contaminated lake, what's it dose to our body? And this is done by all kinds of radionuclides. So so they're big databases. And, and, and so, so, like, so when I buy my house and they do a radon detection. Oh, yeah, we can tell you. How, well, internationally, people are uh, thinking harder about how they calculate radon. Well, in Florida, it's important because the, the sand has natural uranium deposits, so that's well, trace element. I have a radon detector in my home. Yeah. When I bought a house here 30 years ago, you know, that was when a lot of the radon stuff was coming out, and I thought, okay, I want to make sure that when I go to sell this, I don't have a problem I don't know about. So I actually had a radon measurement made. 1.4 picocuries per liter, so it's like about a factor of three below the, below the action level. And, and so I think, you know, Steve has, did Steve tell you, Steve has one, he can monitor it on his phone. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've got one that I can monitor from my phone as well. It's at my house in, in Florida. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I can. But you know, there are people who used to pay to go sit in uh, radium mines so they could inhale radon. Uh, as a therapeutic. <laughs> or at least they believed as a therapeutic. Well, they also what, got what, what the radium springs. They, they drank it, they bathed in it, and they inhaled it. Yeah, well, and they also. They, they thought that it gave you your body a, a therapeutic reaction yeah. that increased your immune system. Rejuvenated. I gave you like an immune, like essentially like taking an immune boosting supplement. They also yeah. used to sell like. Cushions that had radium in it, so like you could sit on it. They also thought it was good for a sexual performance. Some of them. Oh, did they? Yeah, when you read well, it. Yeah. Everything that's ever been invented has been thought of for yeah. that. <laughs> I think that's how some of the greatest discoveries in uh, human history have come about. I think Tesla's are now considered that. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you sell it. Right? The magnets and MRIs of the cars. <laughs> hey, <but> you <laughs> cars. <laughs> but I have to tell you, the other day I did see a Tesla that broke down on the side of the road. <laughs> so there, 
those, all those people. Well, we, we drove here in one from uh, Orlando, uh, and yesterday it was the first time ever in my life. So, I got some range so, anxiety. So, <laughs> so occasionally I've been talking about electric cars, right? Yeah. Our current president acts like by 2035, everybody have an electric car. Okay. If they give me one, fine. You know, how, well, I mean, you think about people who don't make much money. How's this going to work? Yeah, how's it going to work? But, but anyway, so I took the uh, total mileage of just the interstate highways in the United States. And I said, okay, the range, what's the range of a Tesla? 200 and something? 200 and something. Yeah. Okay. So I said, okay, now we need a charging stations every 200 miles along this 50,000 miles of interstate highway. And and really, it didn't make sense to have them every 200 miles, right? And, and how many charging stations do you need? You know, because it takes, what, 30 minutes? Yeah, 20 to 30 minutes. 30 minutes. Yeah, so do I want to wait 20 minutes while he's charging? And then charge mine. So with this thing, I said, this is a natural application for micro reactors, small modular reactors. Absolutely. We put them all over the country, bury them, you know. And they're always available. And it's always charged. Rain or shine, you know? wind or none. And, yeah. and the Canadians are already thinking about that for the indigenous people in the far reaches. They don't want to run oh, grid like, lines yeah, up there. Like that, so yeah. they're really pushing small modular reactors to go there. And somebody said, well, are they going to mess with them? But I think... People envision some of these looking just kind of like a battery, right? It runs for 16 years. Nobody like, like a transformer yard. Nobody messes with yeah. a transformer yard, right? They're stupid. Yeah. So, yeah. so you do that. So, so I mean, there's, there's some interesting As long as things. it doesn't have a big sign on it that says, you know, I'm a nuclear reactor, come yeah. here and see me. <laughs> well, well, then I saw just yesterday, what? NASA saying, let's put a put reactor on the, on the moon. Yeah, I was reading that too, yeah. So, uh, but well, I think see, they're using it as like to to then create the moon as a way station for. Yeah. Well, and they say ultimately we need one on Mars. We well, don't worry, Nolan. You'll get the call about doing some modeling for that. Yeah. So you'll, you'll learn all about the details. Because <laughs> some person has to go to the moon. You have to do the calculation of what happens if we fall into a crater on top of this thing. Well, no, uh, <laughs> well, you know what they used to do for Mars when George W. Bush, when we were going to Mars in that administration. I went to a meeting and they they showed this graphic solar panels on Mars to give you like maybe I forget how what the power was, but it was like thirteen NFL football fields of solar panels. And the problem is the dust settles, so you lose about five percent of the power every yeah. month. And then they showed you know so they showed this big area on the graph and they put a little dot. Boom! This is a nuclear reactor generating. And I think it's like only like. A tiny, yeah, two hundred megawatts. Like, yeah, right? well, it wasn't even that big. It was just oh, like hundred megawatts, yeah. fifty megawatts. Oh, yeah, like, like yeah. A- and their idea was you put a shadow shield. Okay, you know, you put your habitat far enough away so the one over R squared fall off is so kept far. you safe, and then you put a shadow a shield that just kind of shadowed that area so one blasting you. So I don't know whether those concepts will come back or not. But Well, they could bury them because you don't have plate tectonics there, so they could bury them safely in Mars. Well, see, their idea was you send an unmanned mission. Yeah. The reactor lands. It starts up. You start making. You need hydrogen for the return trip, right? So, yeah, I, you, start. so you start doing chemical processes, you know, do radiolysis to break it out of water. Of course, I, you know, now they think they have water, yeah. but I guess originally they're going to send water with it, and then then you're ready to go back. So, I mean, it was kind of, I went to that meeting, nobody would really, that was a meeting when Bill Clinton was still president. So nobody said, oh, we're going with the reactor, but it was apparent <laughs> that, that's that, that, that's where, that was the way to go. And their argument is you can go really deep into space if you have enough power to do stuff. And so, so deep space travel, even beyond, they would say that, you know. 
Yeah. I think, well, I mean, for me as a fan of Star Trek, you know, deep space travel is, is something I, w- I wish we already had. But from my understanding, it's limited not by the fuel source, it's limited by the speed at which we can travel. Right, right. So if we can find a way to put uh, nuclear engines inside uh, spacecraft and then get them to get up the speeds we need, then <laughs> we, we can withstand the speed, right? That's right. <laughs> Acceleration, get up in the speed. But anyway, yeah. No, it's uh, the other thing we're kind of, and guys at Georgia Tech Research Institute are with this. There's a program called Pele, P-E-L-E, which the Army wants a three megawatt reactor for deployment. Okay. And so, so, I mean, there's a lot of things that are That'd happening on smaller scales, unlike gigantic plant Vogel. 2,000 megawatt plants. Or whatever, yeah. Right. Well, in, in a 1,000 megawatt electric, what are they going to do in the future? They're going to take six. Six one, 180s or something. Yeah, six 180s or whatever, and, and, and they're going to be manufactured. Yeah. So the quality control's tighter, so it'll be manufactured and just kind of down and yeah. connected up. And you're ready to go. So those are all innovative things. And, and I guess what I was surprised is two years ago I was at a meeting in Canada, and they're really fired up about oh, Canada. Canada always has been. Yeah. Canada always has been really. Brilliant. Yeah, I mean, when we started talking, when Ken and I started talking about small modular reactors, I started listening to podcasts. I'm reading about them, and the fact that you could power so much from something so little for such a long period of time is is fascinating to me. And it's, it, it was fascinating to the naval nuclear community as well. Adam Rickover picked up on that. Yeah. That's why we have and, a naval and, nuclear navy. And what we have, though, is guys like Bill Gates who say, hey, this is a good way to go. Elon Musk, you know, all these, these guys. Anybody looks at the data objectively, yeah, they come or, to that conclusion. Or putting yeah. money into this. So it's uh, interesting to see what's going to happen. And again, it comes down to, you know, the lay people not having a greater understanding of it. Then you have people like Bill Gates and Elon Musk and people like that that are far more intelligent than the everyday human being. And they sit there and they look at it objectively, you know, without any other preconception. And they go, well, the data supports yeah. this. Yeah. Well, there's just a, such a, it's just, it's also an easy, it's easy conclusion to come to. They're just the scale of power production capable. Yeah. And massively the population different. of the earth is ever expanding yeah. at this point, I think. So it's a, we'll come to a point soon where it, And the challenge is when it comes to solar energy and wind energy, okay, yeah. People are always arguing battery storage and all that stuff, but the sun doesn't always shine. We know that. Have you ever taken the train from Vienna to Budapest? No. You go through there and there's like hundreds of windmills and about 5% of them are turning. So I don't know what that means. They don't need the power or the wind wind's strong enough to turn all of them. You know, I don't know. Yeah. The interesting thing about that, as you said, is you need battery storage and then the battery storage is not, A, it's not efficient to, you know, about no. the grades over no. time. And then it's also got, you know, what do you do when the battery, well, where does that go? Buy another one from China. Yeah, but then. <laughs> and they, they kill the rainforest to make the battery. Exactly. They've got to, they got to dig up South America to get <laughs> yeah, all, the, yeah. all the lithium out of the ground to make or, the battery. Or, or you could just be intelligent. And, 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 and then what do you do with the dead battery cells? Yeah. They're not recyclable. And, they <laughs> they and it doesn't decay. Right. So the toxicity stays forever, decreases yeah. Yeah. Know, with, with time. So, yeah, it's it. Or, or you being intelligent about optimizing your production capacity modularly and scale that and try to, try to produce what you need. Yeah, but I mean, you just used a really great word. The, the toxicity doesn't decay in a regular battery like it does with the uh, reaction. Right. I mean, I guess you know, there may be chemical reactions, but, you know, in the end. In the end, it's still pretty. Yeah. Cadmium is cadmium, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's true. So it's... Uh, so what else? What else is happening that you guys 
Well, I, one of the things I've told him about is this little thing we were, we were thinking about. Medicine thinks through different ways of different models that make sense. You know, we go through healthcare changes here and we try to do more with less and more, more intelligently. And we were gradually in the U.S. moving from a fee-for-service system Within Obamacare, we really moved into a more of a, a thinking about the use of expensive technologies like radiology services and radiation oncology services for cancer to be more episodic. And what I mean by that is, is that as before, you get a breast cancer or a prostate cancer, one of the both of those utilize radiotherapy services very highly. You go for a standard fractionation scheme like we have on the machine downstairs here, the Varian Linac, and you get six week, four to six weeks, one point eight gray a day, up to fifty or fifty five gray. And that's your tumorcidal dose, and that's six weeks, and you get your therapy. Thank you. But that's an expensive thing to do. And only really wealthy nations can do that. And now, as you're starting to see, then that only attra- addresses things that this beam can actually access. But things that are disseminated in the body, like some of these neuroendocrine tumors, carcinoid tumors, just there is no good way to get radiation to those, and, and chemotherapy is not effective. And so people have been relooking at radioisotopes, and also in cases where you had a primary disease that was localized, like prostate or breast, but then the patient it metastasized early for some reason and didn't catch it early or it had spread. And so then it starts to become a systemic disease, a spread disease, like one of these neuroendocrine tumors. And then how do you treat that? You can't just put the beam everywhere and treat it unless flash works. Maybe you can do that if flash works, but assuming you I don't. I think he already gave up on flash. <laughs> if he gave up. No, no I'm not giving up. I don't think, I he, think it's a difference in timing. His, his dying words are going to be <laughs> No, I believe it. It's just it's just time. No, I understand. But 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 in the meantime, what do we do in the meantime, right? And in the meantime, I think there's this, 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 this interesting path for radionuclides to be looked at again. Well, you're looking at Mr. Data for radionuclides here. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. You know, years, years ago, we had a former. What's old is new again, Nolan. You yeah, know yeah, we have, have alumni who uh, came to me. You know, this is like maybe 25 years ago already. And he said, okay, what's the problem in developing countries? Refrigeration, right? You don't have power. Yeah, sure. Okay, so food and radiation makes sense, right? You hermetically seal it. He said, well, then you don't have power. You can't use an accelerator. He said, so what are we? So his idea was he was going to build a, a canal kind of thing and float the food past a cobalt-60 source. <laughs> <laughs> and I I've said, not heard that one before. I, and I'm saying, well, that's interesting, but I, uh, you, know, you better really secure the... Uh, yeah, that's not going to work. ...the source. But I mean, yeah, it's kind of another look. Yeah, well, you know what you say, what, what's old is new. I always tell when it comes to detector development, there's an old magazine called Nucleonics that was in the 50s. If you go in there and you look, you'll see some guys had some really good ideas, but they didn't have the technology to pull it off. And you and, look at those and they're yeah, redo, redo them now. And I, and I keep thinking, you know, what, what, maybe when I retire, I'll just bring a big stack of those home and, and work through them. Through them. Yeah, because yeah. there, there's some interesting things in there, but they couldn't do it, you know, for either they, they didn't have the cryogenic systems and all this stuff that, that we have now so they can... Well, nowadays, in particular, uh, I was, I was, I've engaged in with Nolan still. It's interesting, all these years later, we're still working on the stuff together for this, doing some modeling for radioisotopes for optimizing possible use of topical treatments of radiation for the number one indication of cancer in the, on all human races, the skin cancer. And so there may be ways to make that much more convenient. And it requires someone to optimize and model the isotopes, and then think about the supply chain of those isotopes and where they can come from. Can they come from reactor process stuff, or can they come from electronically created in, a, in an artificial created by linear accelerator device? And proper selection of materials and proper processing of those materials 
And so that has ramifications for where you could be used in an Australia or somewhere like that or some other place or in a, in a dense city, you know, you might choose one option or the other. I think though that's a, that's because you have this this radioisotope option that possibly enables that, whereas having to put a linear accelerator everywhere is not necessarily to, to your friend who wanted to float the river people. You're not necessarily the best option even today. <laughs> you could develop convenient, you know, you can, you can make certain convenient things happen because of that. Yeah, I mean, being able to take isotopes and ingest them or topically use them or whatever it is to attack certain things very specifically. Yes. And And having certain receptors, amazing, right? So the alternative is really quite crude. It's butchery. It's it's surgery. Yeah. Most surgery just says, it's a simple technique. It says, keep cutting skin until you get a negative path result back. Cut, slice, path, slice, path. Stay here all day, Mr. Brooks. Well, sorry, your ear is gone. We'll we'll put you a fake ear on there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess I better let Anna in, right? Okay, you gotta go. up next. Well, I think she's in at ten thirty. We don't want okay. to. Oh, mess with well, thank you so much. I know, for I'm time. With <laughs> it's been it's been fun. It's all interesting, you know. A lot, a lot of things we're kind of teaming with guys at Emory to try and you know you can take neutrons, and I don't know whether you know what linear energy transfer spectrum is, but you can I take neutrons and look at the recoils in tissue, and you can say, hey, that looks kind of like the linear energy distribution from cosmic rays. So can you do things without going to gigantic labs? So, so that's the fun thing I'm closing out my career with, I think. Sounds like a lot no, of No, you're not. You're, you're closing out with skin patches. Oh, yeah. For okay. <laughs> and Vienna's in major lockdown, so most restaurants are closed. I assume you can get delivery. So I'll probably be running some numbers for you at night. (laughs) Have a fantastic trip and thank you again. (laughs) Thank you, Nolan. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can find the Coefficient Life podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have a topic you want to hear more about, follow us on social media and message us through Facebook. Remember, energy is everywhere. Use yours wisely. 